Can you imagine being the very first disciple who ever spent time with Jesus? Why don't you think about that with me? Imagine the privilege of being the first one, the first person, the first follower to spend time alone with Jesus when his ministry began. Jesus' ministry began the day he showed up to be baptized by John the Baptist. And so after he was baptized, he leaves and he goes off to fast and pray for 40 days. And when he returns, he returns to John the Baptist and, and some of John's followers. And John looks at Jesus and says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, two of John's followers, a man named Andrew and a young man also named John, they hear John say this and they approach Jesus. And they come up to Jesus and they basically say, hey, Jesus, can we spend some time with you? And Jesus says, sure. And they spend the afternoon with Jesus. Here are the first two disciples spending time alone with Jesus, a young man named Andrew and a young man named John. Well, Andrew and John leave that encounter, that very first encounter and conversation with Jesus, and they declare, we have found the Messiah. Andrew goes to get his brother Peter, and he brings him to Jesus. Young John, the Apostle John, was one of the first two disciples to spend time alone with Jesus. Can you imagine how that must have forever changed his life? Good morning. My name is Kevin. I am the groups and disciple-making pastor here at Genesis Church, and we are continuing our series, as Steve mentioned, called Humans of the Bible. Maybe you've heard about the popular social media uh, account called Humans of New York. Humans of, of New York was a project started by a photographer in New York by the name of Brandon Stanton. And shortly after Brandon started this project, he uh, made some changes to it. He originally set out to photograph 10,000 New Yorkers. He wanted to photograph the face of 10,000 New Yorkers. But he started to ask them questions when he was photographing them. He'd ask them simple questions, maybe just one or two, but they were very personal questions. He'd ask them questions about their greatest struggles in life, or he'd ask them questions about their uh, hopes and dreams. As people shared with Stanton, he found their answers so compelling and their stories so intriguing that he started a blog with it. And eventually he wrote a book, and now Humans of New York, the social media account, the whole project has now over 20 million followers on social media, and it's expanded to over 20 countries around the world. Now, what was the intrigue? The intrigue is that people see in these New Yorkers' stories pictures of themselves, and they can identify with their hopes and dreams and their struggles, and then they take, we can take lessons from their lives. In our series, Humans of the Bible, we're going to look at some real people represented in the, in the Bible, in the Old and New Testaments. We're going to listen to their life story and try to learn from them. The people in the Bible are not fictional. They're not fictional. It's not a storybook. They're real, real humans just like you and me. Last week we looked at Moses, and this morning we're looking at the Apostle John. We're going to spend most of our time in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, we're going to fly through the Gospel of John together. You can turn to... Uh, John chapter 1, we'll get started there. Before we dive in, will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful um, that you loved us so much that you sent your son Jesus on our behalf. And I'm so thankful that you gave us your word. And I'm so thankful for people in the Bible, uh, for examples, uh, for from people that we could learn from like the Apostle John. 
God, as we open up your word in the next half hour or so, as we study your scriptures, as we look at your life, Jesus, as we try to learn from the Apostle John, I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes. Would you open our eyes so you can, we can see what you want us to see this morning? Would you open our ears so we can hear what you want us to hear? Father, I trust that everybody that's here this morning is here for a reason. I trust that you want to say something to all of us, and I pray, Jesus, you would speak to us today. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, the Apostle John is, uh, he's one of my heroes. I got really excited about being able to teach on the Apostle John. He's kind of discipled me through his writing. Uh, John is one of the most, uh, one of the people I most look, uh, look forward to, to meeting in heaven. I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting him and getting to know him. I don't know if you have a, anybody in the Bible like that, but I'm looking forward to, to getting to know John in person someday. But the, the Gospel of John is, is the book I've read more than any other book in the Bible. I've read, I've spent more time in that gospel and more time studying it and learning from it than any other place in the Bible. We don't know a whole lot about John uh, before his, I'm sorry, we don't know a whole lot about John before he started following Jesus. Here's what we do know about John before he started following Jesus is that he had an older brother named James. And together, James and John were fishermen and they were fishermen with their father, Zebedee. We know their, their dad's name is Zebedee. How about that? Uh, and uh, they were fishermen at the Sea of Galilee. Um, <laughs> just had the thought, man, if I have a son, uh, another son one day, maybe I'll name him Zebedee. Um, young, John, young John must have had a real hunger for God. Um, and, and, and we're told that he was a disciple and follower of John the Baptist first. And just, so just for clarity, right, John the Baptist is different than John the Gospel writer. Okay? The, the Apostle John is different than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was older. John the Baptist was eventually beheaded. Uh, the Apostle John uh, was a young man. He was probably in his, early, uh, in his late teens when he started following Jesus. But, but John was following John the Baptist first. And John the Baptist uh, was baptizing and teaching, uh, and his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And his teaching, his message was a message of repentance. In fact, you know the very first command in the New Testament? The very first command in the New Testament belongs to John the Baptist. He gave it. It's in Matthew chapter 3, and the command is to repent. It's the very first command. And so to repent means to turn around or to go a different direction. Sin is any time we turn away from God and selfishly insist on going our own way. And so to repent is to turn back to God, to turn away from your sin, to turn away from selfishly living life your way, and to turn back to living God's way. And so by being a disciple of John the Baptist, the young John, John the Apostle, must have personally, he must have personally confessed his sins, repented, and been baptized prior to when Jesus showed up. Clearly, God was working in young John's life, preparing young John for the arrival of Jesus. Now, John was not only one of the first two disciples to spend time with Jesus, but he was also one of the three who were closest to Jesus throughout his whole ministry. In the gospel accounts, Peter, James, and John are the ones who are very clearly spent the most time with Jesus. I follow a guy named Pete Souza on Instagram. Anybody know who Pete Souza is? I didn't think so. Pete Souza was the photographer, the official photographer for President Barack Obama for eight years. And I follow him on Instagram. He still posts today photos from Barack Obama's eight years in office. It's amazing to me some of the photos that he, po he posts of uh, Obama's presidency. He had an up-close personal view for eight years of the president. He followed him 
everywhere he went, every day. John, John had an up-close and personal view of Jesus. In fact, if there was one person who had the most intimate, close view of Jesus, it was probably the Apostle John. Let me give you three, just three examples in Scripture why I think it's safe to come to that conclusion. First example, one day, about nine months before Jesus is uh, crucified on the cross, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on a mountain to pray. And while Jesus was praying, Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus. Get that, right? Moses and Elijah, they manifest their presence and they start talking to Jesus. They have a meeting and it says they speak about Jesus' pending departure, which is about nine months away at that point. Then, after Moses and Elijah leave, a cloud descends on the mountain and it says from that cloud, God spoke from heaven audibly. And he says to Peter, James, and John, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. It's the same thing the father spoke to Jesus about two years earlier at Jesus' baptism. Well, Peter, James, and John fall to the ground terrified. Can you imagine this? First, they see Moses and Elijah. If that's not enough, then a cloud descends on on the mountain, and God speaks to them through the cloud. Jesus tells them, listen, don't don't worry. He he encourages them, gets them up. And then Jesus tells them, he says, don't tell anyone about this experience until after I've been raised from the dead. And so Peter, James, and John keep this unbelievable experience a total secret to themselves for the last nine months of Jesus' ministry. Can you imagine that? Imagine what kind of conversations they had. Imagine how that impacted John. But what a close, unique experience John had of Jesus. A second example of John's closeness to Jesus would be uh, at the very end, when Jesus goes to the garden. Jesus and his disciples go to the garden to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night Jesus is going to be arrested. It's only a few hours. They're going to spend a few hours in prayer in the garden. And when they arrive at the garden, Jesus tells nine of the disciples, or most of the disciples, rather, to hang back and, and, and pray. He says, stay here and pray. Okay, Judas was already gone, so there wasn't nine at this point. It's probably eight. Uh, And so he tells eight of them to hang back and pray. Then he takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further into the garden, and he says, come pray with me. I want you to read what Jesus says to them in Mark 14. Jesus says, says he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Notice it says, after he takes Peter, James, and John along with him, then he began to be sorrowful. Then he began to be distressed and troubled. Think about that. It was only to these three disciples that Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed. Jesus bore his soul. He bared his soul to just three men, and young John was one of them. What a powerful, intimate experience John got to experience uh, with, with Jesus. A third example is later that day when Jesus was crucified. About 24 hours, uh, within 24 hours, Jesus is crucified. And John once again experiences a very unique and kind of close, intimate moment with Jesus. While Jesus is on the cross, just before he dies, he looks down at his mother, Mary, who's there. And he, then he looks at young John, the apostle, and he tells John, John, would you take care of my mother, Mary? And the text tells us that from that day forward, John took Mary into his home and cared for her. Wow. Can you imagine the privilege? Can you imagine if Jesus asked you to take care of his mother? What a relationship John had with Jesus. And I think it's from this relationship, after spending three and a half years with Jesus, up close and personal, I wonder what, G- I wonder what John would tell you and I today. 
What kind of wisdom, what kind of lessons could we learn from John today, from this guy who had such an intimate, close relationship with Jesus? Well, I think if you examine his gospel account in John and his letters, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John letters. He also wrote the book of Revelation. I think you can identify a few themes. And when you tie all those themes together, you get a summary message from John that sounds something like this. Real life is only found in a close relationship with Jesus. If you're taking notes today, you you want to write that down. Real life, real life is only found in a close relationship with Jesus. Now, in my opinion, this is what the Apostle John would want us to know if he could give us some wisdom this morning. Now, how did I come up with that? Well, let me show you some of the things I've seen in John's writings and in John's gospel over the years. Let's start by looking at the end of John's gospel in John chapter 20. We're going to look at the summary message of John. He basically gives a summary concluding statement to his whole gospel in John chapter 20. Here's what he says, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He's saying, listen, I didn't get everything down. But these that I did write, I wrote that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, I wrote these things down. I wrote this gospel so that you would believe in Jesus and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now I want to highlight two words or really two concepts here that John uh, uh, speaks to. First, the first word or concept is the word believe, and the second is life. John says he wrote the gospel that we may believe, and that by believing, we can have life in his name. Now, Webster's Dictionary, our modern definition of believe, is this, to accept or regard something as true. To accept or regard something as true. So to believe is to accept or regard something as true. So if our, in our culture, if you believe something, you accept it or regard it as true. I believe the earth is round. Right? I, I accept and regard that as true. Now, when John uses the word believe, he means more than that. He means to accept and regard something that's true, but it's much more than that. He uses the Greek word pistuo. It's a bad, I, I can't pronounce it. Anyways, just trust me. It's a really significant word to John. It's a really significant word to John. John uses this word believe 98 times in his gospel. 98 times. Now, compare that to Luke. Luke only used this word nine times. Mark used it 11 times, and Matthew used it 14 times. John used this word 98 times. One author said you could call John's gospel the gospel of belief. Now, here's the word, though. Here's the thing, though. The word belief that John uses is a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb, not a noun. Here's why this is important. He's saying there's a difference between saying I have belief versus the ongoing act of believing. John doesn't call us to to have a belief as if it were in the past tense and it were complete. We are called as Christians to the ongoing act of believing. So see, here's what I mean by this. For many Christians, we see salvation in Jesus as something that's past tense and complete. In other words, you have trusted Christ for salvation in the past at a certain point in your life. You could maybe even point to a date or an experience, and you could tell a story about that certain point in your life. It's almost almost as if we say, though, that at at what point in your past did you receive your ticket to heaven? It's past tense. It's complete. It's done. You've had the belief. It was that moment. Beth Moore in her uh, author, speaker, Beth Moore, you may be familiar with her, in her study on the Apostle John, she poses this question. Is the scope of your belief in Christ in the past tense security of salvation kind of belief, or 
Could you be caught today in the active, ongoing lifestyle of believing in Christ? In other words, more writes, are we simply nouns, believers, or are we verbs, believing? Don't you like that? I'm afraid. I'm afraid. And it's a sincere fear. I'm afraid many Christians are, are nouns and not verbs. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that passage in John chapter 20, 30 through 31. Listen to how Peterson paraphrases this. He says, Jesus provided far more God-revealing signs than, than uh, are written down in this book. These are written down so, why are they written down? So that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And look at this. Peterson catches it. He catches the heart of, of what John was saying. In the act of believing, have real and eternal life in the way that Jesus personally revealed it. Are you a believer or are you living continually in the act of believing Jesus? Notice how Peterson describes life. And that's the second word uh, or, that, or concept that I want to highlight of John's. John uses the word life in his gospel more than any of the other gospels use the word life. Let's look at another summary passage of John's. First John chapter 5. So John wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. At the end of the 1 John letter, chapter 5, verse 11 through 13, John writes this summary statement. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son, does, uh, Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, let's, hold that, let's hold that scripture up there just for a second, Don. I want you to notice how many times John uses the word life in this passage. Count with me. God has given us eternal life, one, and this life, two, is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, three. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life, four. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life, five. Five times in three sentences, John uses the word life. I'd say he's trying to tell us something. What do you think? Now, the word for life here is the Greek word zoe. Zoe, li zoe life, zoe kind of life means more than just being alive. It means that, but it's much more than that. It's much richer. Zoe life can be described as real life or genuine life. It can also be, it can also be defined as the fullness of life. There's a richness to zoe life. I'm familiar with that term because we named it our second daughter, Zoe. Our daughter, Zoe, is full of life. I wish I, we, uh, if I thought I had, the, I had this picture of Zoe um, we took just about a week ago. And I mean, it just captures her beautifully. But she has this huge smile on her face, and she is laughing. And in that picture, you'd say, man, she is full of life. Right? We're saying much more than she's alive. We're saying she's full of life. That's the kind of life, that's the kind of life Jesus offers you and I. That's the kind of life that the Apostle John is talking about. Full, abundant, rich, real, eternal life. Now, how do we experience that kind of life? Well, let's let Jesus define, let's let Jesus define it for us a little bit. Let's look over to John 17, 3. This is back in John's gospel. John recorded Jesus saying this. Jesus says this. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is Jesus. Jesus is defining eternal life for us. Let me ask you something. As you read that verse, when does eternal life begin? Look at that passage. When does eternal life begin? Does eternal life begin when we die? According to Jesus, not me. 
What's Jesus say? No. Eternal life begins the minute, the minute we come to know God. The minute we enter into relationship with God, we have eternal life. Eternal life is not something we start when we die. Eternal life is something we begin as soon as we come into that life-giving relationship with Jesus. And here's something that's important for you to understand, is to understand the word know. You've probably been around, if you've heard me teach this a number of times, I can't teach more than four or five times without bringing up this word. But the word for know in that passage is the word gnosko. And it's one of my favorite, most dearest words in all of the Bible because it gives so much life and meaning and understanding to this passage. See, gnosko is not just a head knowledge about some facts. Gnosko means a knowledge that's grounded in personal experience. Or it can also mean to be intimately acquainted with. I can know a lot about something or someone, but that doesn't mean I know them. If I go to the White House today and knock on the door, are they going to let me in? No, they're probably going to arrest me. Well, there's no telling what would happen if I knocked on the door, that White House door. But if Ivanka Trump knocked on the front door of the White House today, are they going to let her in? Why? Because she knows the president. She's intimately acquainted with the president. She has a knowledge that's grounded in personal experience. This is eternal life, people. This is the eternal life that God has offered to us. Real life, eternal life, is only found in a close personal relationship with Jesus. I think this is a good summary of John's message. Now, how did I come to that conclusion? Let's look back at some of the experiences very quickly. I'm going to run through. John had with Jesus. I think you'll see this pattern play out in John's life. It's unbelievable. Let's start with the story of Nicodemus. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and Nicodemus is a religious leader and a Pharisee. And the religious leaders and Pharisees were skeptical of Jesus from early on, from the very beginning. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's nicknamed Nick at night because he... I didn't think that was that funny. I like that. It's good. I'll use that one next service. So, um, it's always good to get a laugh. Okay, so... uh, who am I talking about? Nicodemus. <laughs> he, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he's curious. And so while it was, he was, he, he, the, rest of his, the rest of his crew would have been very upset with him coming to Jesus. He comes to him at night and he has this conversation with Jesus. I won't go through it all. It's found in John chapter 3, but here, here's the thing. Uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's the, the phrase born again Christian. You probably heard it came from this passage. And Nicodemus is like, well, what do you mean, born again? And he says, well, just as flesh gives birth to flesh, the spirit has to give birth to to the spirit. You need new life, Nicodemus. And then he goes on to quote a verse that I don't even have to put up on the screen, but I will, that you all all know. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but hath eternal life. Did you ever know that that often quoted verses actually in the context of an interaction that he had with a religious leader who was seeking to learn more about Jesus. And Jesus says, here's the truth. The truth is, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Now remember, when Jesus says eternal life, he's not talking about a ticket to heaven. Although eternal life gets you, a relationship with Jesus gets you into heaven. That's not what he's meaning. Jesus is saying, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have a close personal relationship with God. Let me tell you another example where I see this eternal life, this 
personal relationship with Jesus being real life in the life in the gospel of John the Samaritan woman Jesus comes uh, upon the Samaritan woman at the well and she's at the well and she's gone to get water and Jesus has this encounter with her and this conversation with her and to her he says this in John chapter 4 verse 13 and 14 Jesus answered everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst indeed the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life see this pattern already Two stories. What's Jesus saying? I am your source of life. Let's keep going. At one point, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, which was a big no-no. You don't heal on the Sabbath. You don't do anything on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders don't like this, and they begin to attack Jesus. And Jesus tells them, listen, I'm just doing my father's work. Well, that was way of Jesus' way of making himself equal with God. And that really sets off the religious leaders. And from that point on, they really are trying to kill Jesus. And here's how Jesus responds to them in John chapter 5, verse 24 and 26. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life whoever hears my word you know Jesus still speaks today and when Jesus speaks to you it is life-giving the same voice in Genesis 1 who spoke creation into existence speaks to our hearts today the same one who created life then speaks life into us today Jesus says, whoever hears my voice and believes in me has eternal life, life as it was meant to be lived. They've crossed over from death to life. Verse 25, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's not talking about dead people. He's talking about people who are living a, a deathly life, people who are living a lifeless life. Some of you can relate to that. I can relate to that. Up until about 2001, I was living a lifeless life. And then Jesus spoke to me. And he drew me to himself. Did it through people and through circumstances. And people shared the gospel with me. I gave my life to Christ. And he brought life to me. He brought eternal life. It's been amazing what God has done in my life. You all, many of you can relate to that. Many of you have a story like that. That before you met Jesus, you had a lifeless life. And then Jesus spoke to you. And he spoke life into you. Verse 26, Father, for, the, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Let's look at another example. We've got to keep going. Jesus is one day feeding the 5,000, right? You know, you remember, you're probably familiar with the story. 5,000 people, you add women and children. Some scholars say fifteen to 20,000 people. They're there. They don't have food. Jesus gets a, gets a few loaves of bread, some fish, and he multiplies it and he feeds 5,000. We're all so enamored with that, with a miracle. But look what Jesus says afterwards. In John chapter 6, verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus does this miracle. He provides all this bread, and they're all amazed by the miracle, and he's going, da, 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 you're not getting it. That's my best rabbi Jesus voice. <laughs> I've never done it before. I probably won't use it again. Um, I don't know where that came from. He said, you're not getting it. He says, the point is, I am the bread of life. I am your source of life. I am your source of life, Jesus says. Look at John 6, verse 47 and 48. A little bit later, he's explaining to his disciples and some people. He says, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. He says, I am the bread of life. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I am your source of life, real life. The life you're looking for, the life you're searching for is only going to be found in a close, personal relationship with me. Another time, Jesus is teaching at one of the festivals. And in John chapter 7, here's what he says to them. 
On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and in a loud voice, he said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying, I am your source of life. Another example, Jesus is teaching. He uses the shepherd and sheep analogy. You're familiar with this. He says, I am the good shepherd and, and, and you're my sheep. And he says in John 10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it what? To the full. Some translations say abundantly. Let me ask you this morning. You got abundant full life? Do you have abundant full life? That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what he wants for me. A little bit later in John 10, verse 27, 28, Jesus says this, my sheep listen to my, my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I want to point out here that in verse 27, he said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. The same word know, guess what, guess what word that is? Anybody want to guess it? Gnosko. Gnosko. Jesus says, I gnosko them and they follow me. I know them. I'm intimately acquainted with them. I've had a personal experience with these people. Those, who, those are who my followers are. In John 10, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Guess what word he uses? Gnosko. Verse 15, just as the father gnoskos me and I gnosko the father and I lay down my life from the sheep. Do you see this? Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see Jesus is saying, here's what I want. I want a close, intimate, personal relationship with you. And this verse blows my mind. About five or six years ago, I was studying the Gospel of John, and I came across this passage, and I saw something in this passage that rocked my world and forever changed my view of my relationship with God. Here's, here's what I saw. I saw the phrase, just as. Look at it. You see the phrase, just as? Just as. Let me tell you why that's so important. Because on the front half of that just as, Jesus describes a relationship. And what relationship is he describing? Look at it. Whose relationship? His relationship with who? The Father. No, no, no. No, no. Us. I know my sheep. Wait a second. That ain't right. I know my sheep. I know this verse. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I know my sheep. Who's the sheep? You and me. Jesus says, just as I, the kind of relationship I want with my sheep just as the Father and I, look at this, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Here's what he's saying. He says, I want the kind of relationship. Jesus is saying this to you this morning. I want the kind of relationship with you, with you, that I had with my earthly father while I was here on earth. Wrap your mind around. I've been, I've been thinking about that for five years. And that is Unbelievable. Jesus says, I want that kind of intimacy with you. I want to have as close a relationship with you as I had with my heavenly Father, just as my Father and I know one another. I want to know you. Now, how are we doing on time? I think we can, I think we can make it. Let's keep going. Okay. I want you to listen to some of the things that, some of the ways Jesus describes his relationship with his Father. I'm going to run through them real quick. You're not going to see them on the screen. Just listen. Okay? In John 5, 19, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Listen to how Jesus describes his relationship with his Father. 
Verse 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 7, 16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. John 8, verse 50, I'm not here to glorify myself. I'm here to glorify my father. John 12, for I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken, and I know that his commands lead to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father's told me to say. John 14, Jesus says, I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father's commanded me. Do you see this close, intimate relationship that Jesus had with his Father? Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see something that John would have saw in those three and a half years of watching Jesus up and close, up close and personal, and that's this that Jesus' source of life here on earth was his relationship with his father. That was his source of life. His source of life was his close relationship with his father. And he says the same is true for you all. I'm gonna tell you one more, let me give you one more example in John 15. We're gonna, uh, John 15, Jesus is, uh, he's just had the last supper. He's going up to the garden and on the way he stops and he gives his disciples one last lesson. And here's the lesson. He says, my father's the gardener. I'm the vine and you're a branch. And he says, you have to stay connected to me. Here's what he says in John 15 verse five. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Who's the vine? Who's the vine? Who is it? Okay. Who are the branches? This is such a simple illustration. I want you to realize something. Jesus gave an illustration here that is so simple, it's universally recognized and universally familiar for all of human history. The example of a vine and a branch or a tree and a branch. What human on the face of the earth in the history of mankind could not relate to this analogy? But it, it, will, it will change your life, and here's why. What's the role of the vine? What's the role of a vine in the branch's life? Nutritious, what else? It's its source of life. The vine is the source of life for the branch. If I break that branch, I go outside today, I break a branch off a tree, and I throw it on the porch. I come back a week later. Is that branch going to be alive or dead? Dead. Some of you, some of you, some of you are not sure why you have this kind of dead experience in your life. There's some of this lack of joy. There's this lack of vitality. There's a lack of abundance. There's a lack of peace in your life. You just quite haven't found what you're looking for. Let me tell you why. It's probably, in part at least, due to the fact that you've disconnected from the vine, your source of life. The vine's role is to be our source of life. Now, Jesus says in this verse, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, I in you, you'll bear much fruit. I want you to notice, uh, what's, what's, let me ask you this. What do you think is the most important word in that verse? I did this before. I did this last year. Anybody remember this? Some of y'all remember. What is it? Anybody remember? What's the most important word in that verse? Mm. You got one? Why don't you pick one? Remain apart. If. If. Let me tell you why I can make a case why if is the most important word in that verse. Because if implies that we have a choice to make. And there are two promises directly tied to that word if. If you remain in me, you will do what? Bear much fruit. But if you do not remain in me, you will what? You can do nothing. You won't bear fruit. Two promises, a positive promise and a negative promise. 
so gracious of Jesus to tell us the truth. Hey, if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. But if you don't remain in me, I promise you, you won't bear any fruit. Now, here's the, if is the most important word. If you remain in him, we have a choice. Now, let me show you another word in that verse. It's the word remain. Some old translations are what? Remember the old translations, uh, King, James, King James Version is what? Abide. I love abide. Abide is so much better than remain. Remain is weak and watered down. Abide. Abide is a rich, strong word. It's the Greek word meno, M-E-N-O. Here's what it means. It means to stay. It means to stay, to stay with. Or as I like to to, uh, define it, it means to stay relationally connected to. Stay relationally connected to your source of life. Stay relationally connected to Jesus. If you stay relationally connected to Jesus, you'll bear much fruit. If you don't stay relationally connected to Jesus, you won't bear much fruit. Now, why did John put this in his gospel? I think because it left an incredible impression on him. Do you know he wrote this, he wrote this about in John 15, decades after Jesus said it? Decades. Why? I think it stuck with him his whole life. So much so that in 1 John 2.28, when John is now writing to his disciples, look at what John says in 1 John 2.28. And now, dear children, they're not his biological children, they're his spiritual children. He's made disciples, and he's writing to them, and he says to them, listen, continue in him. You know what word that is? It's abide. It's a remain. It's minnow. He says, abide in Jesus. Keep, keep abiding in Jesus so that when Jesus appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If I had one verse, kind of two verses, if I had one coin to flip every Sunday in this room, it would be John 15, 5 and 1 John 2, 28. Here's why. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. If you don't abide in me, you won't bear any fruit. And then John says in 1 John 2, 28, keep abiding in me because one day you're going to, keep abiding in Jesus, John says, keep abiding in Jesus because one day you're going to stand before Jesus. And when you stand before him, will you have gnosko with him? Will you have a close personal relationship with him? Will you be familiar with him? Will you knock on that door and he says, yeah, I know him, come on in. 1 John 2, 28. Dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. You know what that means? Here's what it means to me. Here's what it tells me. Some people, when they stand before Jesus, are going to lack confidence and be somewhat ashamed. And I think it's because, John is saying, because you didn't stay relationally connected to him. Like a shepherd and a sheep. You didn't follow your shepherd. You didn't stay connected to the vine. I want you to look at, uh, John wrote Revelation. Here's where we're going in. John wrote Revelation the book of Revelation also. And I want you to look at what John said in Revelation chapter 21, verse one through four. John says this. He's talking about at the end when Jesus does return. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, okay, loud voice from the throne, Some different scholars think different things. Could this be Jesus from the throne? Could this be angels from the throne? We don't know. Could this be the Father from the throne? We're not quite sure who the loud voice is, but from the throne of God in heaven, a loud voice is going to shout at the return of Jesus. And here's 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 what that voice is going to say. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Pause. The word dwell, guess what word it is? Abide. 
Do you catch that? God will abide with us and we will abide with him. See, y'all, that's the whole purpose of it all. That's the whole purpose of it all. That's why you were created. It's why you were created. It's why I was created. We were created by our creator so that he, we could be in close relationship with him. That's the way it was in Genesis. See, we often quote, he'll wipe every, every tear from their eyes and there'll be no, no more death or, or mourning or crying or pain for the older, older of things has passed away. And that's, that, we should quote that. I'm looking forward to that. But we always miss why. Because who's going to wipe the tear away? Jesus. Why do we get excited about heaven? Not because there's no more crying or tearing or pain, uh, uh, tears or pain. We get excited about heaven because Jesus is going to be there. He's going to be the one who looks us in the eye, and he's going to be the one who wipes away the tears. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. I want to end today by going all the way back to the beginning of John's story. The first time John met Jesus, Jesus asked John a question. It's found in John chapter 1, verse 38. Here's the question. Jesus turned and saw them, Andrew and John, following and said to them, what are you seeking? This is the very first question Jesus ever asked any of his followers, and I think it's probably the first question any follower of Christ needs to wrestle with in their own life. What are you seeking? The word seeking there is the word zeteo. It means what are you searching for? What is the aim of your life? What are you aiming your life at? What's the, end, what's the end point that you're aiming your life at? If I jump on an airplane and leave Indianapolis and go to LA, LA uh, Los Angeles, the, airport, the airplane's Zeteo is LAX. It's going to land at LAX. That's what it's searching for. That's what it's seeking. It's seeking that airport. What are you seeking? What am I seeking? What are you seeking? What are we searching for? The gospel, the good news is this. Let's put up the, the gospel slide. You, we, we used this several months ago. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. I want you to start in, in, in God's design circle. God designed us for a close personal love relationship with him. We see that in Adam and Eve in the garden. But here's what happens is we sinned. We sinned. What sin? Sin is anytime we selfishly turn away from God and insist on going our own way. And when we go our own way, when we disconnect ourselves from the source of life, what's it lead to? death. Do you get that? You see it? When we disconnect ourselves from the source of life, it leads to death. The consequences of a broken branch breaking off a vine is death. And that's what's happened to you and I. Death not only in this life, but the Bible says death for all eternity. Do you know what hell is? Hell is simply God saying, if you don't want a relationship with me, fine. Then you don't want a relationship with me for all eternity. Hell is living in eternity without a relationship with God. That's hell. And it leads to brokenness and death here in this life. And when we get in brokenness and death, all of us, all of us, at some point in our life realize that we're broken, that something's missing, that something's not right. And we start to go on this search. We start seeking for things to give us life. Some of us seek success to give us life. Some of us seek a relationship to give us life. We think that we're going to find a relationship and that person is going to give us life, the life we're looking for. Some of us are looking for life in a house. If I get the next house, if, I get, if it's just a little bit bigger, a little bit nicer... If I get a raise, if I get the right job, some of us are looking for success and accomplishment. Some of us are looking for success, and, or some of us are looking for life in, in being a good person and doing good deeds. And we think, that's where I'll find life. I'll just be a really good person, I'll do a lot of good things, and that's going to bring me life. None of it brings you life. None of it does. The good news is this, that God loved us so much, he didn't leave us in our brokenness and death. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. 
And it's not enough just to know that Jesus died on the cross for us and that he was raised to new life and he offers us eternal life. No, we have to turn and trust Jesus. We have to repent. Just as we've turned away from our source of life, the way we get eternal life is to turn back to God and to follow Jesus and his plan for our life. See, that's not just where you get saved. This is not just how you enter, uh, get a salvation, a ticket to heaven. This is the Christian life, period. Is that if there's an area of your life where you, or if there's any area of your life where you're searching to get life from something other than Jesus, then it's sin. And what do you need to do? You need to turn away from it. You need to turn away from it and you need to turn to Jesus, your only source of life. Jeremiah 2.13 says this. My people have committed two sins. It's very simple. Very simple. My people have committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken me. They've turned away from me. They've sought, they, they, they've gone their own way. That's their first sin. And he says, I'm the spring of living water. I'm their source of life. And the second sin is they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. I say all of that to just say this. Is Jesus your source of life? Is Jesus your source of life? Are you abiding in the vine? Are you staying connected to him? Or are you looking for life in something else in this life? Maybe today you've never repented for the first time and said, I want Jesus to be my source of life, both here in this life and for all eternity. Uh, after the service is over, I'll be up front. I'd love to talk with you about your relationship with God. We can just pray and you just tell Jesus that you want that relationship to repent of living life your way and you start following Jesus. Maybe today you've been a Christian for a while, but you found yourself searching for life in something or someone other than Jesus and you need to repent too. You need to turn away from that and turn back to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my source of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for loving us, for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. Thank you for offering us eternal life in your son Jesus. God, I pray that the people in this room this morning, that all of us, me including, Lord, me including, would you help us to stay relationally connected to you? Would you help us to rely on you, depend on you, as our source of life? Would you be our source of life, not just as individuals, but as couples and as families and as a church family, Lord? Would you help Genesis Church look to you, Jesus, and you alone as our source of life? And I trust, Jesus, that your promise is true, that if we would abide in you, we would stay connected to you, that you'll bear much fruit in us and through us, and that our lives will bring you glory. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.